Jesus came to deliver us from the spiritual death of merely external religious ritual and instead give us new life and new hearts as children of God. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, there is an expression that you have probably heard before. You may have even have said it to someone before. And that is the difference between religion and relationship. That statement being that what Christianity is not about religion, it's about a relationship, right? A relationship with God through Christ. Now, it's true that our faith is a religion, and as a religion, that means that there are a certain set of doctrines that are important for us to believe, to hold to, and certainly, there are certain truths that we need to understand. There are biblical truths the Scripture teaches that we are to believe if we are to be in right relationship with God. So there is a doctrine element of religion in our faith. It is also true that there are certain rituals or routines that we have as part of our religion, as part of our faith, right? One of those is is coming to church, coming to church on Sunday morning, some on Saturday evenings or whenever, but we come to church and we gather together in this corporate worship. This is one of our rituals or routines that we have as part of our faith. But you know what? You can believe all of the right doctrines, You can come to church faithfully every Sunday and even other days of the week too. You can be involved in numerous good works. You can give money to the church. You can serve in some ministry. You can do all of those things, but not necessarily be in a right relationship with God, can't you? Now, is it important to believe these certain key doctrines? Of course. Is it good to come to church? Yes, we're told to do that, right? Is it good to be involved in a ministry? Is it good to give to where there is need? Of course there is. All of those things are good things, but those are not what make us right with God. Ultimately, our faith then isn't about religion, outward conformity, outward belief. It's ultimately about an inward transformation and a relationship with God. It's about new life, which is received not because of things we do on the outward side, but because of what God does in us and through us by his spirit. And so we're going to be looking today at a couple of passages in the Gospel of John that talk about the difference between outward religion, outward religious ritual, outward religious involvement versus the inner transformation, inner renewal that God seeks to do in our hearts. So our faith, yeah, is, it's a religion, but it isn't only a religion. Our faith ultimately is a relationship. It's about a relationship with God through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we continue then in our series here then today on the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, moving into a new section here, which I'm calling the King's First Year of Earthly Ministry. The King's First Year of Earthly Ministry. We have seen up to this point the eternality of Christ, uh, that he didn't have a beginning, did he? That he is the eternal God. 
We have seen how he ministered to people in the Old Testament era, in the Old Covenant era, as the angel of the Lord. And then we saw how he came into this work. He took on human flesh. He came into this world, was made like one of us, fully God, fully man, one person with two natures, the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. His birth, and then his childhood, and then his baptism by John. Again, did Jesus need to be baptized for forgiveness of sin? No, he had not sinned, and he never did sin. But he did that as his part of his identification with us, who are sinners, who needed to do that. And so from there then, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. He successfully passed that test. Now, that was not the only uh, test or temptation that he would deal with, but that was a critical one at the beginning there of his ministry. And from there then, we saw how he was then called some of the first disciples and had the first beginnings of his ministry. And now we're going into this first full year of his earthly ministry here. And here is the key idea that I want us to take away from our message today. That's this right here. Jesus came to deliver us from the spiritual death of merely external religious ritual and instead give us new life and new hearts as children of God. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to engage in certain rituals. We all do, right? And there are certain religious doctrines that we must believe. But in the end, you can believe all the right things and you can do all the right things, but what puts us in right relationship with God is not just those beliefs and those outward rituals or routines. It's a right relationship. It's a being transformed from within, a new life and a new heart. And that's something that God does for us and in us. And how do we, how do we come to that place? Through faith faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a powerful work then that God does within us. So he came to deliver us then from the spiritual death of merely external religious ritual and instead give us new life and new hearts as children of God. So our context for our text here, the first one is in John 2, verses 13 through 25. But uh, before we get to that, We're coming out of this account last week we saw where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the significance of that was not just that Jesus was solving a practical problem for someone. It certainly did solve a practical problem. But Jesus was sending a message through that, that he was Messiah and that he had come to transform the old, the old religious ritual represented by the water and the purification pots, into something new and wondrous and glorious. And that was the wine, which is the new relationship with God through faith in him. And so now then, he has entered into this first year of his earthly ministry. He has traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, The scriptures, when we harmonize them, put them all together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we try to do as best we can in putting them in a chronological order here. There was the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, but then three full years, there were three Passovers that Jesus celebrated in his earthly ministry. And today, we're going to read about the first one here then. 
where Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and he is troubled, deeply troubled by what he sees happening in Jerusalem at the temple, in the temple complex then. And so our first passage today is John 2, verses 13 through 25. And in this, we will see three aspects, three aspects of Jesus's deity on display. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. He is both. But here we see Jesus's deity. The fact that he is God is on display. We see three aspects of Jesus's deity in what happens when he goes to Jerusalem and goes to the temple. John tells us in John 2, starting in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So here then we see three aspects of Jesus' deity on display in this. The first one is his zeal or his passion for holiness. So we said Jesus attended the Passover in Jerusalem three times in his earthly ministry. This is the first one. And how many times did he cleanse the temple? at least two that we know of that we read about in Scripture. This is the first one, the beginning of his ministry. We read of another account when? At the end of his earthly ministry, right before the crucifixion, when he goes into the temple after the triumphal entry, he goes into the temple complex, and what does he do? He cleans it again. Now, wait a minute. He already cleaned the temple complex of all this that was wrong that was going on there. Why did he need to do it again? Because it got dirty again, because sinful human beings keep doing things over and over again, right? So this is the first account of his cleansing of the temple. You might wonder, well, what is happening here? Why are people selling animals, oxen and sheep and pigeons? And why are there money changers there? What is going on? What is this all about? 
Well, here it is, is again, everyone had an obligation, every Jewish male had an obligation to go to the Passover. And so people would travel from all over the country, all over the empire, to come for the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. And while you were there, you would sacrifice an animal. But if you were traveling from many, many miles away, hundred or hundreds of miles away, are you going to bring an animal? It's kind of inconvenient to bring an animal for sacrifice all that distance, isn't it? So what would you do? You would get there and you would purchase. You would purchase an animal for the sacrifice there. Now again, anything wrong with that? No, I don't think there's any buy local, somebody said back there, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah, nothing wrong with that. There was a need. And so, in one sense, a need was being met here. The people traveled from hundreds of miles away. They needed to offer up a sacrifice. They didn't have an animal with them, so they would buy one there for that. So that's why there are these animals there and why they're being sold there. Well, what about the money changers? What's that all about? Well, also, when you would go to visit the temple, you would pay a temple tax, kind of a tithe, if you will. You would pay a temple tax, but you couldn't use Roman money for that. You had to use money that was acceptable in the temple for that. It was a special kind of coin that you had to use to pay. So that's what the money changers were. They would take your foreign currency and change it into this currency that was acceptable for use in the temple. So that's why they were there doing what they were doing. So you might think, okay, well, these people were providing a necessary service, weren't they? They were providing animals so people could sacrifice There were money changers so that you could pay your temple tax. Again, you were required to do these things, sacrifice and pay the temple tax. And so they're just providing a needed service. What's the problem? Why was Jesus so angry about people just providing a needed service? What do you think? Dishonest exchange, overcharging. What were they doing? They were ripping people off, okay? Because they knew people were in a bind. You had them, right? It'd be like the, the, the only uh, water store in the middle of a desert somewhere, right? And people walking along, and here's the water there. And so you might be able to get that uh, bottle of water for a dollar over at the store here. But in the desert, you're paying $10 or $20 for it, right? And that's what people were doing. They were ripping their fellow Jews off selling these animals at inflated prices, exchanging the money at, exchange, at, at inflated rates, ripping people off. There's also some question about exactly where they were doing it too, that not only were they ripping people off, but it is probably also the case that they were inside of an area where they really shouldn't have been in the temple. They should have been elsewhere to do that. that. That service was needed, but not right there in the temple itself. So Jesus was angry, and rightfully so, about that, and he drives them out. So here we see his zeal or his passion for holiness. He is a holy God. This is the 
first aspect, this zeal and passion for it and his zeal to protect it. You know, I, I have to tell you, as, as you know, you gave me that wonderful trip to Israel a few years ago. Now, hard to believe it's, what, five or six years now it's been. But had the chance to visit Jerusalem and enter into the old city of Jerusalem and the old temple complex. And, you know, there were many wonderful experiences and highlights of that trip. But at the same time, there were some strange disappointments as well, that I've told you about some of that. And here was one of the strange disappointments, was going to the old city of Jerusalem, the old temple complex there. One of the strange disappointments was seeing, it's almost like being transported back in time, that you go there and here is Jerusalem, the temple complex, and all of these narrow streets, and it's just, it's like one massive flea market, Okay? It's all of these businesses, and it's geared toward tourists, right? Everybody's looking to sell you something. And they can be a little aggressive about it, too. And so here you are. You're, you're, you come there. You're, it's it's a, a moment of worship there. And you're walking down the street, and everybody's trying to sell you something. It's one big marketplace to this day all around the temple complex, what remains of the temple complex in Jerusalem. But here is the thing that really struck me, is that there is a location near there, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is almost certainly the authentic location of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's an amazing thing, and there was a massive church that was built over that. And you can go in there and you can see what is very likely the actual rock of Calvary, where the cross stood. And not too far from that, a literal stone's throw away is the cave where he was buried. So right there you have the place of the crucifixion and the place of his burial and resurrection right there. And so after navigating all of the flea marketers, if you will, <laughs> to get then to this point, imagine my surprise when I look and I see, and I kid you not, guess what was right outside the entrance to the courtyard of, this, of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? A money-changing machine where you could change like your American money into Israeli money. I kid you not. <laughs> but you talk about it's like a, a, a trip back in time, right? Man hasn't, Man hasn't changed, right? So Jesus had a zeal for holiness and for righteousness and to protect it, to uphold it then. But another thing we see about Jesus is Jesus revealed his power of resurrection. You know, he drives these, these money changers and these people selling, drives them all out. And then the Jews, the leaders, the religious leaders come to him like, hey, what are you doing? This is good business, right? <laughs> he says, what do you think you're doing? Again, as they're engaging in their religion, in their religious ritual, right? 
He says, what sign do you show us? Now, in the Gospel of John, when he uses the word sign, he's using it to refer to what? To a miracle. What sign or what miracle do you show us? Who do, other, who do you think you are to be doing what you're doing? Now, the reality is Jesus had already begun to show them signs and miracles. and Many people had seen them and they knew this. But they come to him and they say, what, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are to come and do this? You think you are a prophet from God or something? Well, well, show us. What sign do you show us to prove your authority than to do this? And in effect, Jesus says, you want a sign? All right, I'll show you a sign. How about this one? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, of course, they were thinking very literally, right? Destroy this temple. It is a massive complex. Again, this was the second. There was the original temple. There was the one that the one in, in Solomon's era, which had been uh, glorious. Right? But then after the exile, when they came back, here was this uh, second temple then. But then during the time of Herod, about 20 years or, or 50 years or so before this, where he had begun to build it up and make it glorious again. And he said, what, it's taken 46 years to build this complex, and you're going to destroy it all and build it right back up in three days. But of course, they didn't understand what he was referring to. What was he talking about? John tells us he was referring to the temple of his body. And this is what? This is the resurrection. It's a foreshadowing and a prophecy of the resurrection. Now you might say, well, how did Jesus show his deity in saying that? Because he said, what? Destroy this temple, and in three days, who will raise it up? I will raise it up. Now, if I were to say this to you, and I never would, okay, but if I were to say to you, you know what? You kill me, and I'll raise myself right back up. First of all, you're going to be looking for a new pastor in a hurry, right? First of all. Second of all, then, you might be referring me to some counseling, okay? Right? We could call your bluff. You could call my bluff. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. If anybody would do it, it would be you, Steve. You would be the one who would do that. I know. But then we wouldn't be able to go for our nice steak burritos anymore at El Gordo, so... You have to eat, eat alone then, you know, because so, I know that uh, Noreen doesn't like to go there with you, right? So you're stuck with me, so don't be doing that. So uh, Jesus didn't say, you know, strike me down and I will be lifted up. Now, that would be, that's certainly a miracle, right? Uh, but he says, strike me down and I will raise myself. Who has the power of resurrection? God. God alone. They didn't understand his meaning. Even some of his disciples didn't understand it, but later they would. And they remembered it later. So we see Jesus' zeal for holiness, his power of resurrection, and finally then his full knowledge of hearts. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were like. He knew everything about them. Who knows everything about human beings? God. Right? There's an old, you've probably heard this, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow. The shadow. Nope, 
the Son of God. The Son of God knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, doesn't he? Only God knows these things. So the text tells us then that that many believed in him because of the signs he was doing, but I think we need to understand that's... uh, There's belief, there's real belief, and then there's a kind of a false belief, isn't there? And so there were many, oh yeah, they, yeah, he's the Messiah, look at the signs he's doing, we can't deny it, but it says what? But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. Only God knows what is in our hearts. And speaking of knowing what is in the hearts of men, let's turn to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. I think there's a reason why John tells us that. How about a Jesus knowing what was in men's hearts? Because here we get a prime example right next of him knowing what was in someone's heart. Here's a passage that contains perhaps the most famous Bible verse of all. And someone's favorite, right? But we're told, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and Bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a critical statement here. Jesus said what? You must be born again. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You must be, I must be, people must be born again in order to what? To see the kingdom of God. If we're going to enter the kingdom of God, if we're going to be in right relationship eternally with God, we must be born again. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, let's look at that. First off, let's notice here the necessity the necessity of regeneration and new birth. For some of you, that word regeneration might be a new word for you. What do you mean by that? Well, regeneration is a word that we use to describe the imparting or the giving of new life. When God takes we who are spiritually dead, born spiritually dead, and regenerates us or makes us, causes us to come alive spiritually, able to believe, able to receive him, gives us new life. We're spiritually dead, but he makes us alive in him, spiritually alive. That's what it means to be regenerated. And that's something that the Holy Spirit does. And so the scriptures tell us we must be regenerated. We must be born again. We must be made alive spiritually if we're going to be in right relationship with God and inherit the kingdom. So here is this man of the Pharisees. Now, usually when we think of the Pharisees, I want to ask you to do it again here, like we remember a couple of weeks ago, we said the Pharisees, and you all booed, right? right? So, well, and some of you hissed. I heard that one too. So, uh, so the Pharisees, of course, were, as a, collectively, were very much opposed to Jesus for a number of reasons. But that does not mean that every single one of them was, does it? There were individual Pharisees who did see him, who saw what he was doing, and they couldn't deny it. And Nicodemus was one of them. So here he comes. He sees what Jesus is doing. He says, wait a minute. You know, the scriptures talk about the things that Messiah is going to do, the signs he's going to do. Jesus is doing them. And yet, many of his fellow Pharisees are like, didn't believe in him. So Nicodemus wants to come and talk to him. Straighten this this thing out. So he comes to Jesus by night. You know, there's been some speculation about why by night. Maybe it was more convenient then. Jesus wasn't as busy then or something like that. But I think probably the reason he came by night was what? He didn't want to be seen (laughs) by his other Pharisees. There's something in him that, 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 that believes on some level and wants to check this thing out more, but doesn't want to get be seen with him, right? So he goes and he says, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's acknowledging, I can't deny what you're doing, and no one could be doing this unless, if God isn't with him. 
But Jesus, because he knew all men and knew their hearts, he knew Nicodemus, he just cuts right to the chase. And what does he say? He gets right to the matter of the, he gets right to the heart of the matter, if you will, right? And says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we need to take seriously and believe everything that Jesus says. But when he starts it off with, Truly, truly, that really should grab our attention, right? So it's like, now listen, this is, this is true. This is true. Get this. Understand this. He's emphasizing. You read a book, it might be full of all kinds of information that's important, but when you see the author put something in italics, what does that mean? You really need to pay attention to this. This is critical, right? So when Jesus says, truly, truly, he's like, look, pay attention, This is critical. I say to you, unless you were born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus is confused. He's like, because he's thinking literally, what do you mean born again? How can I be born again? You go in your mother's womb and are born again? How, How does that happen? But Jesus says what? Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the spirit, cannot see the kingdom. It's been some question. What does that mean to be born of water and the Spirit? What is, what is the water there? Is it a reference perhaps to physical birth? Is it a reference to baptism? And the answer, I believe, is neither of those. I think that water is representative of the cleansing of regeneration by the Spirit. You know, just how baptism... As we practice it, what it is an outward expression of an inner spiritual truth, right? The water represents what? The cleansing being made. When you take a bath or a shower, you're being cleansed of the dirt on your body. But when we're washed with the water of faith in, in, in God, the Spirit in Christ, that's a washing of cleansing of our sin. So I think it then it's the water, it's the cleansing of our sin that happens as we're regenerated, made alive by the Spirit. That's the part being born of the Spirit. Now, every one of us, we are here today because at some point, our parents conceived us and our mother gave birth to us, right? Your mother gave birth to you, and so you are here today. You, we have all been born once, and when you were born the first time, you became a member of the human race, the human family, right? But I think what Jesus is saying then is that you must be born again. That term we translate born again literally means born from above, born from heaven, born by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, you're born the first time and you become a member of the human family. But when you're born the set, we need to be born a second time We're born the second time by the power of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and makes us alive in him, gives us new life. We're born the second time into the family of God. We're born the first time, we're members of the family of man. We're born the second time, we become members of the family of God. It's a new life. It's a brand new life. It isn't outward religious Conformity. 
It's new life within by the power of the Holy Spirit who gives birth to this new life in us. Born again, born from above. So Jesus says, don't marvel. Don't marvel at this Nicodemus. He says, the wind, the wind is pneuma. The, the wind, the pneuma, it blows where it does, where it wishes, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes from. And in the same way, the pneuma also translates, wind and pneuma, spirit, same thing, same word. The pneuma, the wind blows where it wills, but the pneuma, the spirit, he does what he wills, right? And we don't understand all of his workings. So Jesus here speaks then of the sovereign power of God of regeneration and making us come alive. Ultimately, why you and I believe, why anyone believes, comes into a right relationship with God is because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in him, in her, in you, to regenerate you and make you come alive to God. That's why anyone believes is because God gives birth to new life first in us. Regeneration. He says, don't marvel at this. We also then see the necessity of the crucifixion. Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? And Jesus says, what, you're the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? It's your job to teach the people and you don't understand. Now, admittedly, some of us might probably say, you know, if I was there, I'd probably be scratching my head a little bit too. Let's be honest. How many of you think you'd be scratching your head a little bit too if you heard Jesus say that? But here's the thing. Jesus says, okay, you're the teacher. Apparently, probably Nicodemus had a reputation for being a a particularly good teacher. He says, you're the teacher of Israel. You're the teacher, and you don't know these things. I think what he's referring to is if we were to go, we won't do it here today, but if we were to do a study in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where where we see again, where God speaks of how he's going to come, that he's going to give his people a new heart, a fleshly heart, rather than the heart of stone. That he would put a new heart in them. He would put new life in them. And this new covenant. So this shouldn't surprise you that I say this, Nicodemus. The word of God has said that he is going to put new life in us, a new heart. This shouldn't surprise you. And Jesus, because he is descended from heaven, he is the one to tell us these things. And then he says something that might confuse us a little bit here too. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What in the world is that all about? All right. Well, if you go back to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, where we see, surprise, surprise, the people of Israel are out in the desert and they are grumbling right? They're grumbling. Now again, why were, they, why were they wandering for so long? Because of their disobedience and their lack of faith, right? And so now here they are, they're continuing to wander because of their sin, and now they're grumbling about it, and they're grumbling against Moses. And God has had enough. He sends deadly serpents into the camp, poisonous serpents, and some of them were dying. And the people are freaking out. Save us, save us, what do we do? And God tells Moses to do something really strange. 
Now, again, when we read it, we might think, well, why in the world is God telling him to do that? But, of course, God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? And there's a significance that goes far beyond what they would have understood at that time. But what does he tell Moses? Okay, these serpents, these deadly serpents, in the camp, I want you to make a serpent out of bronze and then hold it up in the center of the camp and then everyone who looks at that with faith will be healed, will be saved. So that's what Jesus is referring to. And what's the significance? Those that here was their sin was being lifted up before them And if they looked in faith upon that, they would be healed. Well, what was Jesus going to do? He was going to be lifted up from them on the cross, right? He was going to take sin upon himself. And those who look in faith upon him will be healed. They'll be forgiven. They'll be given new life. They'll be saved. And Jesus says what? This must happen the necessity of the crucifixion then. But what do we see though, tier two? The love, the love of God in the gospel. Perhaps the most famous Bible verse of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see at the same time, we see simultaneously God's love and God's justice, don't we? Because God is love, he sent a Savior. Because God is just, holy, that Savior had to take on the punishment for our sin. The sin had to be paid for. And that's why Jesus came. God, his only Son, only God could save us. Why? Because only God could be perfectly obedient to the law of God. And only God could die a death that was worthy of saving all of us. And who is this for? Whoever. Whoever believes in him. And when scripture says belief, it means what? It's trust and confidence. Whoever puts their trust, just like those Israelites looked with faith on that bronze serpent lifted up on the pole and they would be healed and delivered. Whoever looks with faith at the Son of God lifted up on that cross, whoever believes in him, trusts in him, will be healed, delivered, saved. Jesus' first coming, he came to save. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came to save. But he's coming again, isn't he? And when he comes again, what's he going to do? He's going to judge. Light has come into the world that people love the darkness because the light exposes their evil deeds. The gospel is the most wondrous and glorious news of all, but some people fight against it and don't want to hear it. Why? Because it exposes the truth about us, doesn't it? But whoever does come to the light is forever given life and it glorifies God's love and justice when we do that. So what? What do you want me to do with that? I would remind us where we started here that Jesus came to deliver us from the spiritual death of merely external religious ritual and instead give us new life and new hearts as children of God. So I would ask, 
who or what are you trusting in for forgiveness of sin and eternal life? Are you trusting in the doctrines that you believe? Are you trusting in your faithful church attendance? Are you trusting in the ministry that you, that you serve in? Are you trusting in, I'm, a, I'm basically a good person? None of those will save us, will they? The only thing that will save us is trust in the Savior, in Jesus, in his perfect life, in his substitutionary sacrifice, in his death, in his resurrection. Trust in him and what he did. So, have you been born again? You know, sometimes that that word gets thrown out like an insult. All those born-again Christians. By the way, can we be honest for a minute here? Are some of our brothers and sisters maybe say and do some things that can be embarrassing or give us a bad name? Sure they can, right? How many of you would admit maybe you've given Christianity a bad name at one time or another, right? But the issue isn't what somebody, this person does or doesn't. The issue is, is what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Religion won't do it. Only birth from above will do it. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit, only that will save. And if you have believed, are you persevering in faith in Christ? Remaining faithful in him, sharing the gospel message in our world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our hope in Jesus. Lord, your word makes it very clear that we must be born again. We must be born from above. We must have the new life in us that only you can give by the power of your Holy Spirit. But your word tells us that we must believe. So Lord, we do turn in faith, in confidence, in trust in you, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his burial, and his resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that through faith in him is the forgiveness of our sins, is the gift of eternal life, and is the hope of the resurrection and the life to come. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for this gift, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.